This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In the 1999 movie The Informant, a 60 Minutes host asked the reluctant whistleblower Jeffrey Wigand, played by Russell Crowe, and you wish you hadn't come forward? You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? Wigand responds, yeah, at times, I wish I hadn't done it. There were times I felt compelled to do it. If you ask me would I do it again, do I think it's worth it? Yeah, I think it's worth it. Whistleblowers face numerous challenges, but for some, it is worth it. So what incentivizes people to blow the whistle? We'll discuss that today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, brought to you by PLI, offering the practitioner's perspective on securities regulatory, enforcement, and fraud cases you should be following. Today, we'll be talking about the whistleblower rules and the explosion of tips from whistleblowers to the SEC and other government agencies in recent years. We're fortunate to have with us on this episode, Matt Stock, an attorney at the Zuckerman Law Firm here in Washington, D.C., who represents whistleblowers before the SEC and other regulatory agencies. That's right, Chris. We're happy to have Matt with us. Matt is the director of the Whistleblower Rewards Practice at Zuckerman Law. He's an attorney, a certified public accountant, certified fraud examiner, and former KPMG external auditor. Matt leverages his experience as an attorney, CPA, CFE, and auditor to help whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers investigate and disclose complex financial frauds to the SEC, CFTC, DOJ, and IRS. Matt also, from time to time, assists whistleblowers in Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower retaliation cases, analyzing a wide range of accounting issues, including financial statement fraud, inadequate internal controls, and issuer disclosure violations. I'll stop there, but if you want to know more about Matt, you can find him on the Zuckerman Law website at www.zuckermanlaw.com or on Twitter, where I met Matt. He is at Matthew underscore stock underscore. Welcome to the show, Matt. Pleasure to be here. On today's episode, we're going to focus on the process of preparing and providing tips to the SEC. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for a lot of folks. The procedure to obtain an award, or sometimes called a bounty payment, uh, from the SEC in reporting that whistleblower matter. Let's get started. All right, Chris, we've got a bunch of questions lined up for Matt, but I want to take a minute to orient our listeners to the SEC's whistleblower program. The SEC whistleblower program was created by the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Protection Act commonly known as Dodd-Frank. The rules of the program are a bit thorny, but to summarize, the SEC whistleblower program incentivizes whistleblowers to report specific, timely, and credible information about potential violations of the federal securities laws. Under the program, a whistleblower may be eligible for an award if he or she provides a tip that leads to a successful SEC enforcement action in which the SEC orders more than $1 million in disgorgement or sanctions. In such a case, the whistleblower may be entitled to receive 10 to 30% of the total amount collected. Whistleblowers are not required to report internally to be eligible for an award from the SEC, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. We'll talk a lot a bit more about that later. (laughs) In addition to establishing an awards program, Dodd-Frank also prohibits employers from retaliating against whistleblowers and gives the SEC authority to bring enforcement actions in certain circumstances— against employers that retaliate against whistleblower employees, another topic we're going to pick up on later. To give a sense of the scale and perhaps success of the program, let me throw out a few fun facts about the SEC's whistleblower program. First, the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower receives thousands of tips every year. In the program's first full year, that was fiscal year 2012, the office received 3,001 tips. Last year, in fiscal year 2019, the Whistleblower Office received more than 5,200 tips. 
And since the office opened, it has received more than 33,000 tips. Last year, corporate disclosures and offering frauds were the most frequently reported securities laws violations, amounting to roughly one-third of the total tips received by the SEC's whistleblower office. And this has been consistent over the years of the program. Last fun fact, and this is really probably the most fun fact, the SEC has awarded approximately $387 million to 72 individuals since issuing its first award in 2012. To date, the highest awards to individuals include a $50 million award in March 2018, a $39 million award in September 2018, a $37 million award in March 2019, and a $33 million award in March 2018. And you have to keep going for a while before you get out of the tens of millions of dollars. But I have to say, over the span of the program, awards are typically in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Still, a potentially profitable business. And before we get too excited about it, that's again, 72 whistleblowers received payments out of the, what was it, 33,000 tips that have been received since the program started. Correct. So we'll get into a lot of the details there, but I don't want all of you running out and calling some folks to see what kind of whistleblower uh, moves you can make this week. Now, I, I want to be clear. The SEC is not the only agency that has a whistleblower program. Other agencies have their own programs. Notably, the CFTC has a whistleblower program that was also created by Dodd-Frank and is functionally equivalent to the SEC's program. Uh, One of my favorite anecdotes about the CFTC's program is that when they initially released their rules, they clearly copied and pasted from the SEC because they, in fact, referred to the SEC in their their own (laughs) rules. Um, But the CFTC's program has been much less popular for whistleblowers. So, for example, last year, the CFTC received 455 tips. Uh, and their high water mark was 760 tips in 2018. You know, again, compare that to the more than 5,000 tips that the SEC got just last year. And to date, the CFTC has awarded approximately $100 million in whistleblower awards, again, compared to more than $387 million doled out by the SEC. I know that Matt represents whistleblowers in front of a bunch of different agencies, but for purposes of the conversation today, we're just going to focus on the SEC. So, Matt, that was a lot, but are you ready to get started? I am. Excellent. Let's talk a little bit about about your practice, Matt, in terms of whistleblower services and dealing with folks who are looking at bringing uh, information forward to the SEC. Uh, you know, what kind of practice, uh, you know, type of terms do you offer? Thank you for bringing up that question. I think it's very important for whistleblowers to understand what roles attorneys can play in whistleblower rewards claims. Many potential whistleblowers assume that the process is as simple as submitting a tip to the SEC and waiting for a check in the mail. And in reality, there's countless hurdles to jump and walls to uh, run through to obtain an award. And as you mentioned, and just to put this in perspective, Of the 33,400 tips submitted, only 72 whistleblowers received an award to date. Now, we we do expect the SEC to issue a significant amount of awards in the coming years as the program continues to mature, but it's just important to understand that not all claims are a slam dunk. So the short answer to your question is we help whistleblowers navigate the rules of the SEC whistleblower program, and we work to maximize the likelihood that they not only obtain, but maximize the amount of any future whistleblower reward. So there's a lot of uh, aspects to this, but the first would be helping a whistleblower assess a case. And in doing that, we analyze countless factors, but just to give a few examples for whistleblowers, the most important or a very important aspect is having a material violation. So Like we mentioned, uh, thousands of tips, and the SEC has limited resources. They can only investigate so many tips. So we look to analyze the facts and hone in on the specific material violations that the SEC would want to bring a successful or would be able to bring a successful enforcement action for, uh, resulting in total monetary sanctions in excess of a million dollars. Another thing we do to assess the cases is look at the evidence involved and determine what type of evidence the whistleblower should submit to the SEC, and also what evidence the whistleblower should absolutely not submit to the SEC. And a lot of times in speaking with uh, whistleblowers, they may be a bit shocked uh, in terms of 
what would not want to go to the SEC? And that could perhaps hinder the progress of an investigation or the prospects of at least opening an investigation. Another important thing we do to assess a case is determine eligibility. (laughs) That's obviously a big part of this program. So is the whistleblower eligible to receive an award? Or do they need to take certain steps or maybe fall under an exception to the rules to be eligible for an award? Another aspect of the SEC whistleblower program is that whistleblowers can obtain awards based off successful related actions. So a place where we see this a lot is in FCPA enforcement actions. That's the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, where the SEC will work with the DOJ to bring both criminal and civil enforcement actions against entities that violate the FCPA. And in the event that the SEC obtains or has a successful enforcement action resulting in monetary sanctions in excess of a million dollars, and the DOJ has a successful enforcement as well, you combine those recoveries to determine the the total pot that the whistleblower could have a potential 10 to 30% award out of. And uh, finally, for assessing cases, we also want to know whether or not the whistleblower is looking to remain anonymous. And thankfully, the SEC whistleblower program does allow whistleblowers to report anonymously if represented by counsel. And, and that's not available in all whistleblower reward programs. For example, the IRS whistleblower reward program does not allow that. So I think that's a very important development, but it's also a very critical aspect of a claim on how to approach it going forward with what information do you tell to the SEC in terms of, and also trying to protect your client's confidentiality. And then next aspect is to help a whistleblower work up a case. There's, again, there's, there's a lot of things that we can do to work up a case, but for starters, we'll prepare an effective submission, which is known as a form TCR, tip complaint or referral that's submitted to the SEC. And in short, the TCR should provide the SEC with a clear roadmap for bringing a successful enforcement action. And besides submitting tips to the SEC, we also file a lot of additional submissions, uh, especially if there's an ongoing scheme or if there's an extensive analysis of the violation that's required or Maybe there's simply too much information to submit in the first uh, TCR, so you'll supplement it in additional TCRs. Another thing that attorneys can do is represent whistleblowers in interviews with the SEC, as well as work with the enforcement staff throughout the entire investigation. And finally, at the end of this process, if our client's tip leads to a successful enforcement action of more than $1 million, then we'll apply for an award for the client emphasizing all the factors that could increase the amount of an award to near 30% instead of on the lower end of 10. That's a a really helpful overview, Matt. Thank you. And I'm pleased to see that you've been playing along with our acronym bingo game at home. I I think I caught an FCPA, a DOJ, a TCR, and probably some other things in there as well. Add it to our list for future episodes. (laughs) Just out of curiosity, I want to follow up on a point you made sort of in the middle, which is about information that a whistleblower would not submit I mean, can you give me an example of what that might be? Sure. For, for example, whistleblowers should not be walking out of companies with a flash drive of data and submitting these things to the SEC. The SEC does not want all evidence. They want evidence that is specific to the violation. And so if there's just a document dump, it's not helpful. One, two, the whistleblower can open up themselves to liability. And three, it may contain confidential company information. There could be uh, attorney-client privileged emails in these files. And so it's not necessarily helpful at in all circumstances to submit more information. Sometimes less is better. No, that's great to know. And, and thanks for clarifying there. It sounds like a lot of the work that you and your firm do, Matt, is, is on the evaluation side. But how does a whistleblower or a potential whistleblower even know to, to reach out to you? How do you find that these referrals or these ideas are coming to you so that you can help these folks evaluate their claims or potential tips here? Sure. Uh, most whistleblowers will find us online at our website, ZuckermanLaw.com. Uh, we also get referrals from attorneys and former clients. But we also try to frequently publish articles about the SEC whistleblower program or developments in the SEC whistleblower program and business, accounting, legal journals. 
essentially having a good online presence is just very important in this area due to the popularity of the program, not just in the United States, but internationally as well. To date, the SEC has, like you mentioned, Kurt, uh, more than 33,400 tips, uh, which includes tips from whistleblowers in 123 countries outside of the United States. I just did a quick little math here of that year that had over 5,000 tips. Uh, that's over 14 a day. So, Matt, your phone must be blowing up on a daily basis. Yes, and, and at all times. That's right. <laughs> Regardless <laughs> of work or otherwise, that's good to know. Yeah. You know, we're going to come back to the this concept of how to advertise your whistleblower representation practice later in the lightning round. So, you know, stay tuned for that. But, you know, Matt, I, I think it's a good point in terms of just the the sheer volume including where whistleblowers come from. And, you know, Chris is right. We're talking about 14 a day to the SEC. That must only be some fraction of how many, you know, whistleblower attorneys like yourself are fielding. So when you're thinking about whether or not to take on a representation, what do you think makes a strong whistleblower? Or stated differently, what is likely to make a whistleblower successful? Sure. And for for starters, there's no requirement that a whistleblower is an employee or a company insider to be eligible for an award. But if you look at the SEC whistleblower program's most recent annual report, approximately 69% of the award recipients to date were either current or former company insiders of the entity that they reported to the SEC. So in other words, most successful SEC whistleblowers provide original information about a company where they're an insider or maybe only a few people in that company would have that information. The next important thing, and I'll probably stress this throughout the entire podcast, but there needs to be a material violation. Uh, the SEC receives thousands of tips each year. They have limited resources to investigate the tip. So the tips need to be significant in order to get the SEC's attention. If potential whistleblowers are curious, is my case strong enough? Potentially, they can look at uh, similar SEC enforcement actions online or reach out to an attorney to discuss. And a final factor that I like to consider when assessing a case is whether or not the whistleblower fulfills a lot of the factors that the SEC considers when determining an award amount of between 10 and 30%. So there's positive factors and there's negative factors, which is where the SEC falls in when they make a specific uh, award recommendation. So for example, a whistleblower could receive an increased award amount based off the significance of their tip. Is the information reliable? Is the information complete? Uh, Another thing that can increase an award is the extent of a whistleblower's assistance. So Did the whistleblower and their counsel provide ongoing, extensive, timely assistance to the SEC in their investigation? A third would be the SEC's interest in deterring the specific violations. Is the subject matter of the TCR an SEC priority? Does it deal with retail investors, for example, uh, most recently? And finally, if the whistleblower participates in a company's internal compliance and reporting systems, they could also increase their award. On the flip side, there are factors that can decrease uh, decrease the size of a whistleblower's award. For example, if the whistleblower participated or was culpable for the violation, that is uh, a decrease in award percentage. Unreasonable delay in reporting is a frequent factor that will decrease an award percentage. And finally, if a whistleblower interferes with the company's internal compliance and reporting systems. So you've mentioned a couple times, Matt, this concept that the whistleblower needs to come to you with or report to the SEC a, you know, quote, material violation. And I know that you're a CPA. Chris is a CPA. The concept of materiality is sort of loaded, and, and I can see Chris jittering in his chair at the thought of it. So when you say a material violation, can you tell me, you know, what are you thinking about? Is it something that's um, programmatically important to the SEC enforcement division, or is it something more about the scale of the problem? I guess for starters, in a perfect world, all violations, there would be an SEC attorney looking at it, they'd approach the company and they'd fix the violation. That would be great. In the system that we're working in, they have thousands of tips and limited resources. So a a good example, I'd say for a public filer would be a publicly traded company would be Would the 
let's say accounting fraud, for example, would the accounting fraud be material, uh, material enough that the company would have to restate their financials? Um, another example could be if it's a Ponzi scheme. We have, we've seen a significant amount of cryptocurrency uh, cases recently. And due to the extent of how many there are, it may just be a person who, who raised a fraudulent amount of $200 in their dorm room somewhere. That, these are not the cases that the SEC would be looking at. They need to be material, I guess, in, in respects of also monetary and impact. Would an investor care about um, if it were discovered? It, would it be a big issue? Would it require a restatement? It's kind of a great way to to talk about some of the materiality issues. Obviously, everything I think, Matt, you'd agree is is facts and circumstance based. But that that million dollar threshold compared to uh, you know someone we might have known in college who walked away with two hundred dollars, uh, you know, is a pretty clear line. One of the questions you know we kind of deal with here. You you brought up a little bit the the anonymity portion uh, of a potential whistleblower's thought process. Is there a material difference to the success of a tip and a potential, you know, payment or award based on the the individual being anonymous or not? Is there a, a change in the the way that the SEC or, or other regulatory agencies will respond to to those types of complaints, knowing that someone's name's attached to it versus having a legal counsel kind of protect them? In terms of whether or not it will impact an award percentage, that's not one of the factors that the SEC states mm-hmm. that that it could consider. So I don't see it having any impact on the 10 to 30% determination. Each whistleblower needs to understand the pros and cons of submitting a tip anonymously. For example, if you are a high level at a company and you know that the SEC is receiving thousands of tips each year and they only act on, uh, have limited resources, potentially your name on the complaint could be helpful. They'll say this person's at a high level, they have a lot of credibility, they know exactly what they're talking about. And if we bring in an enforcement action here, open an investigation, it's very likely that we will have a successful enforcement action. Uh, On the flip side, there's obviously risk involved with disclosing your name. And the the SEC protects the whistleblower's confidentiality. However, just letting one more person know that's not your attorney, your name uh, in the course of the process obviously poses risk to the whistleblower. If for whatever reason, the report ever got out. No, that's great to know. And th- thanks for clearing that up for me. As we talk about, you know, the an- anonymous whistleblowers or where they are at a company, sometimes, you know, I understand that, that whistleblowers are actually may have partaken in some of the conduct that, you know, ends up being reported as a potential securities violation. Uh, the term culpable whistleblowers is, is often represented in articles about this. You know, what circumstances is, is that person under, you know, regarding their participation in the alleged conduct? Does that impact their ability to collect an award? Uh, should they consider, you know, different characteristics uh, when they're pursuing a claim, knowing that they, you know, kind of partook in the issues uh, that they're going to be reporting? So there's, there's a few things on this question. But for starters, culpable whistleblowers can be eligible for awards. And in fact, the SEC has uh, had speeches where they spoke about the importance of receiving information from these individuals. Culpable insiders frequently have firsthand knowledge of the misconduct. They can provide the SEC with valuable information and assistance to essentially stop the fraudulent schemes uh, quicker than maybe somebody who is situated differently. However, th- there's a few important items to note here. First, the SEC will not issue an award to a whistleblower. Uh, who's convicted of a criminal violation in relation to an action for which they would otherwise be eligible for an award. So if you report to the SEC, they bring a successful enforcement action, but you are criminally prosecuted for your conduct in that action, then you cannot receive an award. Uh, Also, the SEC whistleblower program does not provide amnesty to whistleblowers who provide information. And another consideration is that culpable whistleblowers cannot benefit from their own misconduct. So specifically, the SEC will not include any monetary sanctions in the calculation of an award if liability is based substantially on the conduct of the whistleblower. And finally, and like I already mentioned, if a whistleblower is culpable, that's one of the factors that the SEC considers when making an award determination of between 10 and 30%. So if a whistleblower is able to receive an award, a culpable whistleblower is able to receive an award, their award percentage would be reduced because of that. I think that's a very important point, knowing that 
people should not be incentivized to go out and create an issue right. and then report it. The SEC is pretty hot, cognizant of that. So good to see that worked in there. But it feels like there's a, a pretty distinct line between involvement and and being the mastermind here. <laughs> and the mastermind isn't going to get a payout at the end of That's the day. Right. And one of the other issues I know that, that comes up related to whistleblowers is, is the professional services providers who have access to information that may you know be at the forefront of some of these issues. As a, as a fellow CPA, Matt, uh, obviously those people related to the, the financial reporting uh, of a company or, or an entity are, are going to know about those things first. Uh, as well as, you know, attorneys like Kurt and, and others may be uh, party to conversations with a board of directors or, or key personnel at a company to know uh, we may have a securities violation in our hand. What types of eligibility requirements, issues, ways of thinking should, should service providers approach, you know, their thoughts about whistleblowing? And first, I want to address just lawyers specifically. The question of whether or not they can get a whistleblower award is a very thorny and, and complex issue. Mm-hmm. My short answer to that is there are very limited circumstances that allow it. In most situations, state ethics rules will prohibit disclosing client information, and the SEC uh, SEC's rules don't do do nothing to change that. So, uh, for lawyers, yes, but in very rare circumstance. Now, as for accountants or other individuals whose principal duties involve maybe compliance or internal audit. The general rule is that they're not eligible for awards unless um, an exception applies. And there are three uh, exceptions to the, in the SEC whistleblower rules. The first being is if they have a reasonable basis to believe that disclosure to the SEC is necessary to prevent the entity from engaging in conduct that's likely to cause substantial injury to the financial interest or property of the entity or investors. And obviously, that, that's a little bit gray. So you could submit and then make a good argument to the SEC that you, that you should be eligible for an award because of this circumstance, but because of this exception, but obviously that's gray. The second exception is if they have a reasonable basis to believe the entity is engaging in conduct that will impede an investigation of the misconduct. That's also a little bit gray because you would have to have a lot of information in terms of how the entity is going about impeding an investigation. Uh, perhaps they're shredding papers everywhere and or something of that nature. But again, that, that's a little bit gray exception. The most concrete exception is if at least 120 days have passed since uh, either they properly disclosed the information internally, um, for example, to their supervisor, or if they obtain information under circumstances indicating that the entities, uh, either the supervisor or the entity's officers already knew about the information. So those are the three exceptions. And then I want to speak just briefly about external auditors, because I assume uh, most people would think that external auditors of issues uh, could never be eligible for whistleblower awards. But in some circumstances, they actually can become eligible for awards. And the eligibility analysis is particularly complicated. So I won't go through the entire analysis at the risk of putting everyone to sleep, but it should be known (laughs) that external auditors do qualify Um, or can qualify for SEC whistleblower awards in certain circumstances. That's good to know. All right. So I I think at this point, we have a pretty good lay of the land in terms of how whistleblowers find you, how you can help them, and, you know, the types of things that would help a whistleblower present a strong case to, to the SEC staff. Let's pivot a little bit, and what I'd like to focus on are things that that you've seen change at the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower since the program took off in 2011. And let me give you an example to start, although I'd, I'd be happy to hear other examples you might have, but there was a lot of conversation a couple of years ago about a case called Digital Realty versus Summers, which ultimately found its way to the United States Supreme Court. For those who aren't familiar with the case in digital realty, SCOTUS held that the anti-retaliation provision in Dodd-Frank is available only to individuals who provide whistleblower tips to the SEC. The whistleblower protection provision is not available to an internal whistleblower, that is, someone who reports only to a supervisor or using an anonymous complaints hotline internally. And as such, an employee who suffers workplace retaliation after reporting suspected misconduct internally but does not make a report to the SEC is not eligible for whistleblower protections. 
The ruling effectively overturned an SEC interpretive release that said the anti-retaliation provision does apply to internal whistleblowers. This caused a lot of people in the market to, to get upset. Compliance professionals and whistleblower advocates insisted that the ruling would disincentivize whistleblowers to report possible violations internally. It would deprive companies of the opportunity to investigate or voluntarily disclose potential violations. And shortly after the ruling came down, I actually wrote an article where I argued that the data don't support the contention that this was going to disincentivize whistleblowers from reporting internally. Essentially what I said was the data didn't show that there was going to be a sudden flood of whistleblowers to the SEC who effectively went around internal reporting mechanisms. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the digital realty decision. So Matt, you know, what are you seeing? Has it changed the landscape? And, you know, importantly... Very importantly. Did I get this one right? Yeah. How, how right was Kurt in his prognostication two years ago? <laughs> it's a, a tough question where I, I should already have the answer that's aligned with your answer. Uh, but uh, you, you don't know in terms of the increase in whistleblower tips, uh, whether digital realty... Um, caused the increase. Maybe there was just a correlation. There has been an increase year after year. But I guess, as you pointed out, the whistleblowers essentially had to file tips with the SEC if they wanted protection under the Dodd-Frank Act's whistleblower protection. Uh, other laws protect internal disclosures. For example, Sarbanes-Oxley Act or SOX protects internal disclosures to publicly traded companies. But the remedies are, are a bit different than what's offered under Dodd-Frank. So for example, Dodd-Frank offers some advantages like double payback. There's a longer statute of limitations and there's just other advantages generally. So we did see an increase in tips to the SEC after digital realty, but it's really difficult to see whether or not the Supreme Court's decision was the reason for that increase. And also we may go into this a bit later, uh, but there's likely to be a legislative response to this soon. Man, I really wish you could have stuck it to Kurt there and tell him that he was wrong. But what I heard was I, that I was right. Is that, did I, <laughs> Maybe no? I heard that you were not wrong, and we'll <laughs> leave it there. I understand it, you know, Kurt's reference to, to the market's reaction, I mean, makes sense logically from a degree. Uh, but there's a, a part of me that also thinks that you know, the whole kind of tipping atmosphere uh, under the whistleblower guidelines you know, might break down into, into types of buckets where you've got those one-off individuals who have stumbled upon something internally and want to do the right thing. But knowing that there's 33,000 tips that have happened, I could potentially see that there's a handful of, I don't know the right term, but super users of the program who feel that any public disclosure or any financial statement that they read is potentially has an issue in it and they want to be the first ones to get to get to reporting to the SEC. It, am I on the right track there? Does it kind of break down into, into that type of you know super user versus one-off category or is it a little bit more uh, opaque than that? No, you hit the nail on the head. The SEC whistleblower program is having issues right now with the claims review process, uh, specifically for, or at least that is one of the reasons for the delay in the SEC processing claim. So like I mentioned, at, at the end of the process, if the SEC brings a successful enforcement action of over 1 million, whistleblowers can apply for an award. And that award is analyzed by the SEC's claims review staff to see whether or not the whistleblower is eligible, what percentage the whistleblower is entitled to, and you lay out all of the reasons uh, to the claims review staff. In addition to whistleblowers who lay out their reasons, so do uh, the super users, uh, as you say, where the SEC continues to get a significant amount of uh, applications for awards from people who just otherwise would not be eligible. And the problem with that is, is that whistleblowers are able to appeal the SEC's final uh, determination on whether or not they are entitled to an award to the U.S. appellate court. So they have to develop a slight record for, for hundreds of tips that just have no uh, absolute use at the program, or mm -hmm. they never submitted a tip in the uh, first place. They just applied for an award. But then the SEC has to spend a lot of resources going through and explaining why that person wasn't eligible uh, for an award. And so there's a, a proposed rule out um, now where the SEC would be able to bar certain individuals from um, applying for awards or just um, cut out otherwise um, obvious 
whistleblowers, or I guess individuals, I'll say, uh, who are applying for awards, who it's just very clear that they were they are not eligible. Kind of the boys and girls who cried wolf. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I think, Matt, at a couple points now, we've hinted at some things that might be on the horizon in terms of how the SEC's whistleblower program is going to potentially be changed by new rules or new legislation. So let's talk about that a little bit, about some of these changes that may be coming. And and first, you just hinted at it. Um, there are proposed SEC whistleblower rule amendments. As I understand it, the proposed rule amendments would provide the commission with additional tools in making whistleblower awards to ensure that meritorious whistleblowers are appropriately rewarded for their efforts. The rule amendments would increase efficiencies in the whistleblower claims review process, and maybe that's sort of limiting certain whistleblowers to to the point you just made. Uh, And the rule amendments would clarify the requirements for anti-retaliation protection under the whistleblower statute. So in terms of new SEC rulemaking, where are we, Matt? I should have touched on this, I guess, in my previous response, but in June 2018, the SEC announced that proposed amendments to the rules of the SEC whistleblower program, and they were going to vote in October of 2019, but the SEC canceled its meeting. But despite the cancellation, we do expect the SEC to vote on these amendments soon. There, there were some, uh, I guess, controversial uh, proposals, and the most controversial of the proposed rules was this discretionary award cap, which would essentially cap awards at $30 million. That, that's the short of it. And the SEC would not, however, have discretion to award less than 10% of the total monetary sanctions collected. So if there was a $400 million award, the floor would be $40 million and the SEC would honor that. But there was indication that the SEC would be looking at um, enforcement actions with total monetary sanctions of in excess of $1 million. Um, they would be looking to reduce whistleblower awards if, if they go above $30 million. So You mentioned the claims review process and how they're trying to speed that up. Uh, also, the whistleblower protections and um, getting in line with digital realty but there is new legislation that's in the pipeline. Um, a bill passed the House in uh, July of 2019, the Whistleblower Protection Reform Act of 2019, by overwhelming majority of uh, 410 to 12. And in September, and Senator Grassley and uh, Baldwin, Durbin, and Ernst introduced the Whistleblower Programs Improvement Act. And, and this would essentially do two things, or at least for the purposes of this conversation. One, protect corporate whistleblowers who report violations internally. So um, what digital reality went against, and then also expedite the claims review process. Um, Specifically, the SEC would be required to make an initial award determination within one year of applying for an award. Uh, Certain exceptions exist, and the SEC can extend the deadline by uh, up to 360 days. So that would dramatically increase the, the current deadline, I would say, because there is no deadline, but the, the process of speeding up the claims review process. It's interesting that that legislation is where it is. It's sort of in keeping with a theme that Chris and I have discussed on previous episodes of the podcast, which is we tend to only discuss bills that fly through the House <laughs> with overwhelming bipartisan support. And I don't I don't think anyone realized that that many bills were getting through the House with That's such right. bipartisan support. What, what's interesting about this one is that it actually got taken up in, in the Senate. And I think perhaps that is because uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, a, a Republican from Iowa, is a long-standing advocate for whistleblowers, for whistleblower protection provisions. And so maybe that that is the type of champion you need to, to get some of these SEC or financial services bills over the hurdle in the Senate. I mean, Matt, do you have a sense? Is, does this thing have legs? Disclosing fraud to the government and having them stop it, I think it's a pretty agreeable issue. So I, I don't see a lot of issues uh, with this getting through. That said, you know, that, that's just my opinion, and I'm also maybe a little biased. Um, I did want to mention, I guess, one more development, though, in terms of, uh, I guess, important legislation and things that uh, could impact SEC whistleblowers, and that deals with disgorgement. And I know you've spoken about this on previous episodes, uh, Lou v. SEC, which is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Oral arguments are set for 
this uh, March. The case is determining whether or not the SEC can continue seeking disgorgement in civil enforcement proceedings brought in federal court. This obviously would have a huge impact on whistleblowers because the awards are based off their total monetary sanctions collected. So that's penalties, disgorgement, and interest. If the SEC is not allowed to obtain disgorgement in these cases, um, it it fluctuates over the years, but typically it's half of uh, recoveries uh, is penalties for the SEC and the other half's disgorgement. You could see potentially half of their monetary sanctions collected for the entire enforcement year uh, just cut in half. Uh, However, we do have new legislation that's also in the pipeline uh, to maybe address this issue. In November 2019, House passed a bill in the the Investor Protection and Capital Markets Fairness Act that essentially would allow for a 14-year statute of limitations uh, for the SEC in disgorgement. It's interesting. You know, I, we, we've been following the Lou case closely, of course. I, I hadn't, to be honest, thought about it in terms of how it would affect a, a whistleblower's ability to obtain an award or perhaps even a whistleblower's eligibility, right? I mean, I guess if what we're doing potentially is lopping off some amount of money or sanctions that would have otherwise been ordered, maybe you don't get to the million dollar threshold. Does that mean if you're a whistleblower that you should wait until you're pretty sure that the statute of limitations will amount to a million dollars? If you discover it too early, uh, maybe it, you're not going to qualify. So so a few things on that. You can apply for an award if there's an order uh, in excess of $1 million. So if there's a final judgment or order of $1 million, you can apply for an award. In some of these cases, and I think there was a, an award very recently, uh, they, they can't collect all the money. So if there's a Ponzi scheme... And they, the Ponzi scheme owed its investors uh, $2 million, but they could only collect uh, you know, $100,000 of, of that amount of money, then you would get 10 to 30% of the total monetary sanctions collected. And I think that this is also an important time to note that the money does not come from uh, the investors. So in the case of a Ponzi scheme, you would not be stealing the people's money, essentially, who the SEC recovered it for. Instead, the SEC set up uh, an investor protection fund that is funded by the monetary sanctions of these exact enforcement actions. So the program is paying for itself and then also paying whistleblowers through that fund. But no funds are taken from investors. That's, that's good to know. Matt, besides making, I think, all three of us feel a little bit old, Dodd-Frank is, is coming up on its 10-year anniversary. Uh, I know all, all of us were uh, you know, around and, and, and you know, following its development uh, what seems a short decade ago. You know, despite some of the, the challenges and changes we've talked about, do you feel that the, the implications of the Dodd-Frank Act as it relates to the whistleblower provisions, have they been successful, in your opinion? Sure. And we talked about a lot of challenges today in terms of what the SEC could be doing better, but it's without a doubt the SEC whistleblower program has absolutely proven to be a success. I mean, since the inception of the program, whistleblower tips have led to many successful enforcement actions, resulting in more than $2 billion in monetary sanctions uh, ordered against wrongdoers. The SEC has issued $387 million in awards to whistleblowers. And while we, I did comment on the number of whistleblowers that was, at the same time, $387 million is, is nothing to turn your nose up at. And then the, the whistleblower program just continues to attract a high volume of tips. Year after year, the SEC receives more and more tips. I think fiscal year 19 was the first time when there was a slight dip. And my opinion is that because we don't know, uh, I guess, essentially why tips are submitted. They do tell us the category, but I just think the crypto craze uh, caused a very strong increase in tips in 2018 compared to fiscal 19. But overall, program is an absolute success. And as it continues to mature, I think the best is really yet to come. All right. So, Matt, while we've got you, we want to put you through the lightning round, which is designed to be a little bit of fun and, and just sort of get your take on a few different things. So are, are you up for some off-the-cuff questions about SEC whistleblowers? 
Of course, yeah. Uh, all right. So first, th- this is an easy one. Um, you know, on a no names basis, of course. Any good war stories? Any uh, any funny or frustrating experiences you've had with a whistleblower or or even with the staff? So, like you mentioned, no names, and I obviously also have to protect my clients' confidentiality in addition to the SEC. So I can't give too many details, but. Overall, I, I can say that I proudly represent a lot of courageous whistleblowers around the world, um, and it always amazes me, but we continue to see the exact same frauds year after year, um, whether it's accounting frauds. They, they say if there's pressure to make the numbers, then there's pressure to make up the numbers, and we will see the exact same revenue recognition schemes that we saw 10 years ago. We continue to see large Ponzi schemes, people guaranteeing 20% on investor funds month after month. And they continue to exist and not only exist, but also raise a significant amount of money. We see market manipulation, foreign bribery, and and the list goes on. But uh, in short, it's an honor to represent people like my clients who are willing to take a risk and sometimes very significant risk, especially in FCPA cases, uh, to put a stop to these frauds. And while the reward's always an important incentive, I think that most people come forward because they believe it's the right thing to do. And I think we've all heard the saying, if you see something, say something. Uh, But (laughs) under the SEC whistleblower program, you can now say it anonymously and also potentially receive an award for doing so. All right. That's that's perfect. So earlier, we talked a little bit about uh, advertising and, and how people find you or find your firm. In 2010... A New York whistleblower attorney started a website that he called secsnitch.com. Your firm is zuckermanlaw.com. Uh, any regrets on the naming convention there? Did you, did you miss a trick? <laughs> Speaking of whistleblower websites, if you type whistleblower.gov into your browser, where do you land? Whistleblower.gov? Uh huh. Where do I land? Yeah. What what page does that take you to? Got to look at it. Oh, oh, we were hoping that you'd be able to pull the quick. <laughs> I had to fact check Kurt on this one too. It, I was it, gonna say I don't want to guess and be wrong, and I don't have my keyboard in front of it's, me. It's it's actually. Now I'm curious what it is. It's the CFTC. Oh, they they did get a good URL. Currently less well known and less communicated uh, segment. So maybe they've got a, a little in on the website. Oh, yeah, I think so. Connection over at Squarespace or yeah, something. I guess I guess autofill uh, has me uh, in line. <laughs> That's in right. My book. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I did not know that. I was expecting to see something else that I uh, didn't want to say. So mm-hmm. this yeah. is good. All right, sticking with ads in. 2010, the SEC snitch law firm famously ran ads during the previews in Manhattan movie theaters. Do you remember this? No, I, I do not. Uh, I uh, imagine they they were pretty convincing in terms of people watching a, a movie looking to to blow the whistle. But uh, no, I do not remember that. Well, we'll have to see if we can get the audio in the production set because it it. Sounds ominously like the Law and Order theme song. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, do you guys have any ads? Are, are you thinking about running something in the local movie theater? No, we have we have no ads right now. Uh, just inf- informative publications, uh, our website, uh, giving speeches and, and speaking with you guys. Perfect. Well, we talked a little bit about the movie theaters in Manhattan. Um, whistleblowers are, are, are kind of an interesting uh, development in the past 15 or 20 years in terms of Hollywood. Uh, a lot of feature films coming out related to you know some of the, the headline cases of whistleblowers. If you had to pick one, what has been your favorite feature film related to the topic of whistleblowing? That's tough. Uh, one doesn't come... At- Exactly to mine, but I will comment on the fact that the popularity of whistleblowing and the concept of whistleblowing has just been exploding in the media. But I do watch most of the movies, and I can say for certainty that most people would not qualify for an award under the SEC whistleblower (laughs) program, and, and I think most whistleblower programs. But that's not to say they weren't important issues. It's just to say that I don't think they were eligible. 
All right. Well, for, for those of you listening, if you want to check out a couple good whistleblower flicks, we've, we've got a, a handy little list here that we'll share with you. Uh, it includes uh, The Insider, which is probably the highest rated whistleblower movie, at least according to Rotten Tomatoes. It's a 1999 film starring Russell Crowe. Uh, there is always The Whistleblower starring Rachel Weisz, 2010. Also, pretty pretty good mm-hmm. ratings on Rotten Tomato. Um We've got Michael Clayton from 2007 starring George Clooney. Uh, the Informant, a sort of funny take on a whistleblower story uh, starring Matt Damon. Uh, just last year, The Report starring Adam Driver of Star Wars fame. And of course, there is the OG whistleblower movie, All the President's Men from 1976, starring Robert Redford as Bob Woodward and Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein memorializing that parking garage in Roslyn, uh, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, right outside of D.C., where, where those conversations took place. That's right. That's right. All right, Matt, it's been, a, it's been a fantastic conversation today. Thank you so much for chatting with us. I think it's been helpful to give people the lay of the land in terms of the whistleblower rules and how things might change going forward. So thanks again for joining us. Of course. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And tell us again, Matt, where can uh, our listeners find you or more information about your practice? Sure. Find us on our website at ZuckermanLaw.com, and that's Z-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-W.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for the Insecurities Podcast brought to you by PLI. I'm Chris Ekimoff. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm Kurt Wolf. You can find me at Enforce underscore Update. Please continue to use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod to join us in our conversations around securities enforcement and regulatory issues. If you have other guests or suggestions for our show, please let us know for future episodes. Thanks again and have a great week. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI.